This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. All our shows are archived there. You can dive deep into politics of the past, at least the past few months. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So as you travel around the world on your sanitized aircraft and land in your sanitized locations, you can pick us up on your digital devices. Uh, we're very pleased today to have Lene Erickson with us as our guest. She is the Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics at the top Washington DC think tank, Third Way. I say it's the top because it's the top for us. She <laughs> leads their advocacy on tackling hot button issues like immigration, abortion, religious liberty and guns, and headed their commitment campaign, which mobilized moderate Americans to support marriage for gay couples. Lene is a lawyer by training, but I can say that has happened to the best of us. But she's used her legal training to do good works, having previously worked uh, as legislative counsel at the Alliance for Justice, as well as the Legal Rights Center and the Center for Victims of Torture. Her commentary has been featured in a variety of news outlets, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, Politico, The New Yorker, and PBS NewsHour. She's appeared on media outlets ranging from NPR to Fox News. And today she makes her debut appearance on the greatest of them all, Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hode. So Lene, welcome to Off the Record. Thank you, it's a very exciting day. It is an exciting day. I don't, I don't know about you, but last night was uh, moving, sobering, uh, and jubilant in terms. Um, Barack Obama gave a speech that I think will be remembered uh, in history as one of the great speeches about what it means to be American and what it means to keep our democracy, or as a founding father said, it's a democracy, sir, if you can keep it. And that is sorely tested. And I thought Kamala Harris was just, just extraordinary. It was a, a jubilant moving performance uh, and speech that really felt from, like it was directly from her heart. We got to know her, I think, for those who don't know her. And it made me feel optimistic um, after the sober reflections from Obama. But so we're we are now uh, almost done with the Democratic convention. It's been uh, three three days plus what's ever happening now as we're uh, speaking of uh, reality TV convention, a whole different way to experience the convention. Now I have to say, many people seem to prefer it because we're lying in bed or sitting on our couches instead of 
jammed up with thousands of sweaty people in a large cattle hall, trying to listen to speeches interrupted every moment by canned applause and standing up and cheering and then dragging ourselves at the end of the night back to our hotel rooms where we collapse and get up and do it again. So relatively, um, the couch style of, uh, is, is pretty good. But Joe Biden is, uh, is going to accept the nomination. It's been a long time coming for Uncle Joe. I mean, he's tried a lot and he finally, you know, rang, what is it called? Rang the bell. He kind of, he, 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 he finally made it. Now, you are an expert on communicating with swing voters. How effective do you think the convention's been in persuading any persuadable voters that might be left? Are there any? And what about motivating turnout across this broad, diverse, and often, often fractious democratic coalition. What do you think? I think it's been a really big success overall. You know, I mean, when you watch the last three days, um, there, it really shows that there is a place in the Democratic Party for all different kinds of people. And there's a place in the Biden and Harris coalition for all different kinds of people. Um, and, you know, it was it was controversial for them to feature as many Republicans for Trump or against Trump as they have. And um, folks got some criticism for that. But I really think, you know, our party has always been a big tent and it's an even bigger tent now because Trump has made his so small. Um, and that message really came out over the last few days. So I think it, uh, if you are a swing voter who's sitting in a suburb thinking, eh, do I want to associate myself with this party? The answer was yes, I can see myself there. And if you're a, a young person in a city who's thinking, does this really matter? Should I go vote? The answer was certainly yes. So I think it's really, you know, enabled uh, a lot of folks across the spectrum to get excited. Um, as you said, feel optimistic, which is really hard right now. I mean, getting out of bed in the morning every day and reading the news, optimism is hard to come by. So feeling, feeling good about where our country can go, feeling like there's a vision for how to get out of this mess. Um, and that, that really came through to me and, and I'm feeling certainly much better than I was Monday morning. Let me just follow up before I turn it over to Matt, who's chafing at the bit. I know he's chafing at the bit to jump in, but both um, Barack Obama and Kamala Harris made a very overt pitch to young people. And we have seen millions of young Americans out in the streets uh, over this summer um, uh, with the BLM movement um, and, um, uh, here in New Hampshire, uh, uh, young progressives um, were, were, I think, somewhat, um, they were concerned. There was pushback. Uh, I'm being diplomatic. There was pushback that uh, Ocasio-Cortez only got uh, 60 seconds, that uh, so many Republicans were featured. Do you think the direct appeals uh, worked? Do you think um, uh, the party is 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 on the right track with with featuring Republicans? Is that an attempt to pull in persuadables? Can it? Does that happen? And what about the persuadable progressives, uh, the persuadable young progressives who are feeling a little bit 
I think left out even with the direct appeals. How do you think that, that what, what, what's the end result? Yeah, I think that, you know, the convention is intended for um, people who do not spend all their day on political Twitter. And for those of us who maybe do, um, you know, watching uh, Kamala introduce herself to the country feels a little silly because you're like, I've seen you in 85 debates over the past two years. But most Americans didn't watch those debates. Um, even most Democratic primary voters didn't watch those debates. And so I think we, those of us who are obsessed with politics need to remember that most people aren't. And, uh, and those folks, um, you know, needed a, a different tone of convention um, than what might necessarily appeal to kind of the, the Twitterati. Um, so I think they've, they've done a pretty good job of doing that. Um, and I think that there is no better uh, turnout mechanism than Donald Trump. I mean, people know that the last time around, uh, we lost by a, an incredibly small margin. Um, any amount of uh, change on that would have been decisive. And I think, uh, you know, they're, they're ready for this. They're ready to go vote. We just did a bunch of focus groups with African-American men in swing states. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a tough crowd for some of the folks in the Democratic Party. They have not been as loyal as Black women. They're not feeling like, um, you know, many of them felt like the, neither party was doing what they needed them to do. Um, yet they were like, I need to vote. <laughs> like, I'm going to vote. Obviously, I'm going to vote. Um, so I do think people kind of got that message. Um, I'll say on the, are there persuadable voters? Um, we work a lot with progressive data firm Catalyst, who does a lot of analysis about, um, you know, who's voting and, and uh, what the decision-making process is. And what they found when they analyzed the midterms is that 90% of the Democratic gain between 2016 and the blue wave of 2018 was from switchers, not from new voters. It was from people who had voted for Trump and then voted for a Democrat in the midterms. And so if that's true of the midterms, we need to continue to build on that. It means there clearly are some switchers out there. They're open to Democrats. And if we can lock them in this year, then we're going to win. Okay. So let's keep digging in here because there are lots of ways to look at the dynamics of the upcoming election. Um, you know, we could look at different demographics gr groups and, and, and age ranges um, and uh, ways to, to slice the, the media picture. Um, third way has really uh, focused like a laser beam on the suburbs. Uh, and I, I'd, I'd love to go there in the discussion. So last week, you guys released a really fascinating analysis of not the suburbs broadly, but, but the smallest suburban counties. And you made the claim that those counties, those areas might really swing the whole election this year. So I want to work toward that report. Let, let's, let's start with the broader context. Um, Donald Trump seems to think, based on his comments, that the, suburb, the suburbs consist of white so-called housewives um, who don't want low-income people, I think we can all read the subtext there, to move in. Um, now, you've shown in your analysis that that is not what the suburbs are all about in the America of 2020. So why are the suburbs so important? Um, and what is going on in the suburbs? What, what does the truth look like? You know, I think the suburbs are so important because, first of all, that's where the voters live. 
50% of voters in this country live in the suburbs. This is not a small demographic group. This is the whole ballgame. And we saw that in 2016 and in 2018, you know, um, Hillary Clinton lost the suburbs in 2016. And she lost them by in the blue wall by a bigger margin than she lost the entire election. If she had won uh, those blue wall suburbs, she would have won the blue wall states and she would be the president. So, you know, if we uh, follow that model, what Democrats did in 2018 was pick up a lot of those votes. They got huge margins in some of those places. And because of that, they won governor's races, they won Senate seats. Um, and that's really why we think that's the path to double down on that, um, you know, on that strategy for 2020. Um, but, you know, Donald Trump has some stereotype in his mind of what the suburbs are. He thinks they're some beaver cleaver, you know, 1950s viewpoint. I mean, this is a man who um, doesn't, you know, go out in real America very often, we know. So uh, clearly doesn't have his finger on the pulse. Um, but what he doesn't realize is um, more voters of color vote in the suburbs than in rural areas and urban areas combined. And I think a lot of people, when you say voters of color, they assume that means urban. It's not true. More of them are in the suburbs. So, you know, when he is trying to make this appeal to a lily white community that he thinks is worried people of color are going to move there, they're already there. And those people of color are voting and their next door neighbors who live next to them and have lived next to them for a really long time are also voting. And they're not afraid of this, you know, quote unquote invasion um, that he's threatening. So let's, uh, let's take a break before we dive into another subject. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXL AM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking with Lene Erickson, the Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics at our favored think tank, Third Way, where I think a lot of Hodes for Congress alumni have cut their teeth, or at least after they lost their teeth in Congress, went there for a, for a soft landing. And I bet Lene knows a bunch of them, and I'm hoping that they may have said nice things about me. But if they didn't, I'll find out who said what, and there'll be real, real, real trouble. But let's assume they did say nice things. And Matt Robeson, Lene Erickson, and I will be back after a short break to talk about some more politics. Don't go away, folks. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet nhtalkradio.com, where you can binge listen to all our past shows, and we're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking with Lene Erickson. She is the Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics at Think Tank Third Way. She leads their advocacy on tackling hot button issues, and she's a smart person with a lot of facts. Now, I know in the era of Trump there are facts and then there are alternative facts. But Lene Erickson is here 
with real facts. And some of them are surprising. She's just told us that 50% of the electorate lives in the suburbs, folks, and nobody really thinks about that. She's told us that Donald Trump thinks it's beaver cleaver time, but that the suburbs look a lot different than Donald Trump thinks they do. But that's not a big surprise because everything looks different than Donald Trump thinks it does because he hardly thinks. But a question about your recent report um, about suburbs and suburban voters. Um, the report says that small suburban communities are where the action is. Now, are small suburban communities a subset of that 50% of the electorate who make up all suburban voters? And if they're the places for the hot action, why? What's going on? You know, uh, they are a subset. And I think our question was, uh, since the suburbs are such a big chunk of the electorate, um, maybe we need to get a little bit more specific about where Democrats need to win. And I think for a lot of people like me who live in a city, when they think about a suburb, they think about the nearest one in, right? They think about Alexandria in Washington, D.C. Um, they And so uh, when I say win voters in the suburbs, they're thinking win Northern Virginia. Uh, but what we had seen when we broke down all the data is there are a lot of voters in those places, in those big close-in suburbs, but a lot of them already voted blue last time around. Their switch happened kind of between you know 2012 to 2016 and so they're already baked into our total if we're looking back at the at the hillary clinton numbers mm. we need to get that total up and uh where those numbers can go up is in those smaller suburbs so it's either the ring out from that or it's the suburbs of a smaller city and those places have maybe fewer people in them, um, but a lot of potential because last time around they did, um, a lot of them vote for Donald Trump, but, um, but now they're really, really questioning that decision and they're, and they're open to a pitch. So let's talk message. Let's talk about that pitch. Um, you guys have done some extensive polling. I think the number I saw was, uh, something like 3,400 interviews. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big sample that you have going in the suburbs. And according to your work, it looks to my eyes like Biden is in a solid position there, but he's got some work to do to close the deal. So what will that look like? What does Biden need to do? Yeah, we've been digging in with different methodologies of research ever since April, because what we realized was things were changing so quickly uh, it often feels right now like you're standing on political quicksand and uh, and things could be totally different tomorrow. Um, so we really wanted to figure out how to stay in touch with these suburbs and what was going on. So every month since April, we've done a different kind of research, digging in, trying to understand what's going on in the suburbs. What are they seeing and what are they looking for? Um, and we did a, a round of kind of massive qualitative research, not a poll, um, but an open-ended set of questions that people got to fill out, um, working with Avalanche Strategy that uses this really great methodology that then analyzes people's language. And what we found in these key battleground suburbs was that uh, people knew what Donald Trump's vision was about. In an open-ended question, we said, describe Donald Trump's vision, 
and people called it divisive and self-serving. This wasn't a poll question where you had four options and you pick divisive and self-serving, which is option B. It's literally their own words. That's how people describe this president and what he's offering. Um, and that's not a positive thing. Uh, and then you ask them about Biden's vision. And that was where things got a little bit um, more messy. You know, when you analyze the language, um, people who were leaning towards Biden would say, oh yes, his vision is clear. Um, and people who were still undecided would say, yeah, I'm not sure his vision is clear, but neither group could describe what that vision was. <laughs> so I think that's really the opportunity that Joe Biden has tonight. And, you know, maybe the, the days leading up to this has, has elucidated that somewhat, but he needs to really close the deal with these folks because they were open to it. And if he locks in those lean Biden voters, he'll have the numbers he needs in these suburbs but uh, they just need to understand what does he have on offer. So there wasn't a sense, at least yet, that his restoring the soul or healing the soul of America was resonating with those voters. There was certainly some people who used words like unity um, when they talked about him. That was mostly people that were already locked in for Biden. That's what they said um, his vision was about. But there was a real mix. There was some about healthcare. There was some about um, he's a good person. You know, there was kind of a, a lot of different things in there. So um, where voters can clearly describe what Donald Trump is is offering and what he. Uh, wants to do in the next four years, there was some more squishiness around, around that for Biden. Um, but the most recent research that we just finished is actually coming out today. It's publishing this afternoon, um, which was more focused on the economy. And same battleground suburbs, uh, the question was, how can Democrats fight on the terrain that has been best for Trump over his time in office? His um, favorability and trust is usually about 10 points higher on the economy than it is in general. So that's his strong suit. How do we fight that um, and his inevitable argument that he's helping the economy recover and, you know, we, we should just leave it in his hands. Um, and what we found was that people believe in the suburbs that COVID and getting it under control and getting the economy back on track are inextricable. So if you cannot do what needs to be done on this pandemic and get it under control, it doesn't matter what your economic plan is. We're not gonna get to an economic recovery. So if Democrats are talking about COVID and about Donald Trump's complete inability to do what needs to be done, to listen to experts, to um, you know, do the hard things that we need to do, then they're gonna win the economic argument. And we really need to stop pitting those two things against each other. It's not COVID or economy, it's COVID and then the economy. And one is a precursor to getting to the other. And you know, oh, continuing on that theme. Oh, okay, yeah, so just continuing on that thought, um, you know, you alluded before to the work you've done on what happened in 2018 that led to the blue wave, at least in the house, um, and what Democrats need to do to replicate that success. And when I say Democrats, I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot more on the ballot here than just the presidential race. Now, you and I know that pollsters are struggling right now with getting around the 800 pound gorilla in the room, um, which is that Donald Trump, you know, is that he's like he's like a black hole. He, he dominates he dominates the solar system here um, in polling. It's what's on people's minds. But 
Beyond that, I think you've shown fairly compellingly in your work that healthcare resonated in 2018, that there was a way to talk about economic issues that you were just alluding to that resonated in 2018. So can Democrats win again? I'm talking about the whole ticket here up and down. Can they win again with that same basic kind of playbook or do they need to do something a little bit different this time around now that Trump himself is on the ballot? You know, I mean, I think the healthcare pitch is still super important. And when you listen to uh, the folks who won really tough seats in 2018 and now have to defend them in 2020, that's what they're talking about. You know, I mean, think about uh, Sochi Torres Small, who in uh, is is representing a, a district in New Mexico that went for Donald Trump by 10 points. And she won it in 2018. Now she has to be on the same ballot as him and, and keep that seat. And she's talking about health care. Um, clearly, Republicans do not have a plan on health care. And they're still, um, the Trump administration is still fighting to uh, take it away from people. You know, they're, they're actively trying to um, upend what we have, even during the middle of a pandemic. So I think it's still a good argument. Um, and, uh, and a solid one for Dems up and down the ballot. Um, obviously now there is an even more important kind of COVID overlay, um, which, it, which I think it just lends urgency to what people already knew, which is that Democrats are much more likely to make sure that they have affordable health care than Republicans. So, you know, I, the shape of elections and the timing of opinion is always a fascinating subject to me. When does it really count? When does the rubber hit the road? When do people start paying attention? Who's up, who's down? Uh, four weeks out sometimes has absolutely no bearing on who's up or who's down. Two weeks out and that may have absolutely no bearing on who's up or who's down as people go into the uh, booths, the voting booths, uh, or go masked and covered in hazmat uh, suits into the polling places this year to speak to people huddled behind plastic shields. But uh, I, I want to, I'm thinking about what's, uh, what the risks are for Democrats, because we always do really well when there's an enemy to talk about. And boy, oh boy, Trump presents a, a, a just a gorgeous target. Um, that is clear. And, and we could even assume for, for the sake of, of argument, as they say in the law, just assume without conceding that, that um, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, doesn't have his finger um, on, on the, on the, on the uh, electoral ballot buttons that our mailboxes stay bolted down on our corners, that the sorting machines haven't been dismantled, that our workers are not being undermined. I know these are big assumptions, but we'll just assume that you've got a, a, a straight election that we can count on, and it's Trump and Biden. Um, now, Trump has run uh, um, on white supremacy, on uh, immigration, keeping, you know, keeping, keeping immigrants out. Um, he's called, he calls Democrats socialists. He thinks that Bernie Sanders is the great puppet master um, and that Biden is too old for the job. So is any of that likely to work for him? 
is this gonna is this gonna tighten up down the stretch? Are we all gonna have, you know, November first and second Ajida as we're pitted in this mano a mano battle between the forces of good and evil? And does it look like uh, the Dark Empire can succeed as we head toward Election Day? Is it gonna tighten up? I mean, I suspect things will tighten only because there's not really anywhere else for them to go. I mean, like Joe Biden is doing very well right now. He's up between seven and nine nationally. He's up in a lot of these key battleground states by six or seven. Um, so Trump has nowhere to go but up, um, you know, and I think a lot of the folks who are undecided, um, if they're undecided, straight up undecided on Trump at this point, they may end up with him in the end because what is there to be undecided on at this point? Mm -hmm. um, so really the task is to lock in those folks that are currently leaning to Biden and lock in as many of them as possible so that we can um, keep this kind of high watermark as, as we go into what, as you said, is gonna be kind of a fraught election in terms of counting. Um, the best way of making sure that uh, that we win is by winning big so that all of those hijinks that Trump is going to try to pull just don't matter because he's lost by so much. Um, so that's that's what I'm working on. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking in, we have uh, a, a short time before the break. So it's a, a short, a short follow up question, which is this. Um, uh, Joe Biden. I love Joe Biden. I know Joe Biden. I love him a lot is prone to um, occasional malapropisms. He sometimes makes gaffes. Is, let's assume that, that how is he immune from gaffes in terms of what the voters see between Trump and Biden? Could his gaffes sink him? I think gaffes can only sink people if they confirm a bad thing voters already think about you. And uh, what voters think about Joe Biden is he's not always got all of the words that he wants to say in the right order. So if he does gaff, it actually confirms something they find kind of endearing about him. I don't think it's gonna, um, you know, it's gonna doom him. Um, what they don't believe is that he's a socialist or that he's gonna defund the police or open the borders or any of these other crazy things. And those attacks might've worked if we had a different nominee but they do not stick to Biden because they're just not credible. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. We're talking with Lene Erickson, the Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics at The Third Way, a prominent and our favorite Washington DC think tank. We're gonna take a short break. Uh, folks, don't go away. We have more fascinating discussion when we return. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXL AM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. You can go back for the many years our show has been on the air. You can hear the famous summit between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, which I did 
totally on my own, but you can still listen to it. Matt Robeson and I have been taking deep dives into politics because he's smart and I'm talkative. And uh, you can binge listen to that. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we are really happy to be talking with Lene Erickson, the Senior Vice President for Social Policy and Politics at The Third Way, a very smart think tank. And she's very smart. So Lene, welcome back. Matt, it's your turn. All right, Lene, I'm really going to put you on the spot here. I'm only going to ask you for the answer to life, the universe, and everything uh, in the future of America. So um, you're also an expert on shaping public opinion. Uh, Paul alluded to your work on marriage equality. Um, and, you know, there's been this interesting thing going on in, in American public opinion over the last 15 years. We've seen public opinion shift on social issues very hard and historically fast on a series of things that I think are unprecedented in at least the history of polling um, on these kinds of broad social concerns. So we saw it happen on marriage equality in the course of about five or six years, a massive 20, 25, 30 point shift uh, on people's views. We, we've seen it happen on uh, issues, rapid shifts certainly on legalizing marijuana. Um, things are starting to move significantly on guns. Um, just in the last uh, uh, five or six years, again. Um, and now we're seeing an ultra rapid shift associated with the Black Lives Matter movement on racial justice issues. So it's a sort of a two-part question. Why do you think now we're experiencing all of these ultra rapid changes um, in a way that they haven't before? And do you think that they're durable or do you think that they're part of a pendulum that might swing back as we move into the 2020s? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think they're durable and here's why. I think that the changes we've seen have been really about um, driven by people being able to put themselves in someone else's shoes. That's what happened on marriage when, um, when all of a sudden you could understand why a gay person might want to get married and understand that they might want to get married for the same reasons that you do. And uh, they weren't trying to destroy the institution. They were trying to participate in it. Um, that was a real light bulb moment for people because then it wasn't quite so scary to say, oh, well, they can join it and it actually doesn't hurt my marriage for them to do so. I think the same thing is happening with Black Lives Matter right now. And something about the George Floyd video in particular enabled people to put themselves in someone else's shoes and say, you know, that, that could be my son, that could be my, my uncle, that could be my grandchild. And, um, and that really changes the way that people think about police violence. Um, now, it, you know, that's, it's, harder on some issues than others because the answers are complex. Um, on immigration, for example, um, it's not like marriage equality. It's not a quick implementable solution that you can just say, stop not letting gay people get married. <laughs> you know, that was pretty easy to do uh, in a practical sense once people got there. Um, immigration is hard. And um, we see, for example, in public opinion, um, people saying, well, the parents who brought the kids to the border share some responsibility for the fact that they're, um, you know, being separated from their families. Now, uh, you know, I, people do not support family separation, but they see it as a much grayer issue. And, um, and it's not, uh, and, and it's certainly not an easy issue to solve 
writ large, we've tried so many times to do immigration reform and, and it has a lot of different pieces that are competing um, that make it much more complex. But I do think where there have been moments of kind of aha moments in public opinion, it's because we've actually opened a conversation with people and shown them this is what it's like to stand in someone's shoes and made it less scary. So let's talk about gravity. And I don't mean the kind that keeps our feet on the on the earth and our and our and our heads in the clouds. I mean political gravity. Um, uh, here in New Hampshire, there is a very recently formed group called the New Hampshire Progressive Coalition, um, and they have grown in terms of their followers very rapidly um, from zero to um, more than a thousand members or followers in an amazingly short time. They're, 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 they're hardly even, I mean, they're, they're just getting going, but this growth um, has been pretty significant here. And um, the question is, are the, is the Democratic Party as a whole veering left? Because for, for many years, uh, I think social scientists and those who study the political tea leaves said, well, you know, the radical right has taken over the Republican Party. They veered hard right, but the Democrats really, they've, they've, they've kind of stayed where they are. They're this broad tent, but they tend to be centrist and they tend to be moderate and they tend to be liberal. And you could say, well, with uh, Bernie and um, the Socialist Democrats battling zero in the primaries, you could say, okay, that's an argument that we're the same old, same old kind of old-fashioned liberal, liberal kind of kind of people. No matter what Bernie did, he didn't get all the way there, and we don't know whether he will, but he'll keep shouting. Don't worry. Now the there have been some breakthroughs for the far left in in 2020. So, so. And especially with what we've seen with uh, BLM this summer and, and so many young people in the streets on an issue that only five years ago might have been unthinkable at the center of the political discussion for Democrats. So is the party going left? Is the old guard dead? Is this the last gasp of liberalism and are we all going to run? Is Ocasio-Cortez going to be running for president in 2024? And that's where the Democrats are going. You know, I think there's certainly some issues on which the country has moved left, not just the party. You know, on racial justice issues, Republicans in the suburbs say that they have a positive viewpoint of Black Lives Matter at this point. This is not a Democratic shift. This is a national shift. And I think the same was true on LGBT rights. Um, but, you know, I don't think that that means that the Sanders agenda is um, either as popular as he claims or going to win the day. It certainly hasn't up until this point. And, you know, we'll go back to the blue wave in, in 2018. The people who flipped the seats that gave Nancy Pelosi the gavel were moderates. They were folks like Abigail Swamberger, Alyssa Slotkin. Um, you know, a lot of really uh, mo like vocal moderates who are not afraid to call themselves that. That's where we made the gains. And the, the Bernie folks actually didn't manage to flip a single seat in 2018 in a blue wave. They couldn't win one. They won in blue places. 
And that's fine. I'm glad they're winning in blue places. They should be represented in blue places, but they aren't the majority makers and they won't be the ones who flip the Senate. If we're able to do that this year, it'll be people like Cal Cunningham, um, you know, people like John Hickenlooper. Um, and there is a different, there's an asymmetry here because Republicans, um, most of the people in the Republican coalition call themselves conservatives. 80% of people who vote for Republicans call themselves conservatives. Democrats are split. So the number of people who call themselves liberal or progressive has gone up by about five points over the past you know, decade since Obama came into office, um, but it's still under a majority of the Democratic coalition. Most people who vote for Democrats either call themselves moderates or conservatives even. There's a small slice still who call themselves conservatives. So I think we've seen public opinion shift on some issues, uh, but the, the, there's not a symmetrical um, power to the Tea Party on the left because it's a minority still of the Democratic coalition. And you certainly saw that play out in the primary, um, but you know, people talk about the base of the Democratic Party and oftentimes they conflate, say, uh, black voters who are a huge base of the Democratic Party and the Sanders types. Those are not the same thing. <laughs> black voters decided they wanted to win and they went with Joe Biden and, uh, you know, the Sanders folks were in a different place. So I think there's a, um, it's a much more complex coalition um, on our side and it gives the left a lot less power to um, kind of obstruct or take over or cleanse the party of moderates as they say they might want to. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting just to kind of append on to the end of your brilliant answer. I, I noted that Dave Wasserman, who you know from uh, Cook Political Report, who's a really incisive analyst in his own right, pointed out that in many ways the Democratic Party has become a more moderate party in the last four years because of what you've been talking about, the shift among suburban voters and suburban kind of light Republican voters who have now begun to identify as Democrats because they hate Trump so much. Um, so kind of jumping off from there, let's, let's go back to the Lene Erickson crystal ball for a second. Let's, let's just assume, um, as lawyers and economists like to do, that uh, we do have a Biden victory. Um, you know, already, as I talk to former colleagues on Capitol Hill, they're all kind of jabbing about the fact that um, there's going to be a real squeeze if we have a Biden administration between Republicans on the right uh, of him who are going to be trying to recoalesce in a post-Trump era as kind of a party in opposition. So their best play is going to be we're against everything that he's for. But on the left, you have a set of energized progressives who, notwithstanding what you just pointed out, that really the majority of the party is kind of moderate or even conservative, they're going to feel like they have a huge equity stake in this administration and this victory. And so there's going to be a, a real tightrope uh, for a Biden administration to walk. So I guess the question is, how big is that danger of, of getting squeezed from both sides to the Democratic Party, to the agenda looking forward in 2021? Um, are there areas that they can focus on that'll satisfy the left, but also resonate strongly enough with voters that they don't become quite as big a target to the right? Um, is this gonna be an incredibly heavy lift? I mean, I think Democrats always have a harder job than Republicans do because we have lots of different kinds of voters in our coalition. At this point, they only have one. 
kind of voter in their coalition. So it's very easy to get on board, although they haven't seemed to be able to in the last couple of weeks. Um, but you know, it, when you look at the governing coalition and, and what we need to do um, if, say, Democrats have all three levers of power in DC, um, which is what I truly hope, um, some of this is going to be driven by events. If you know, there's almost no likelihood that we're out of the pandemic and our economic crisis at that point, because the current president seems to have no interest in getting us out of it. So we're going to be in a crisis situation. And I think that opens up opportunities to act big and um, be bold on things that the Democrats agree on across the board. You know, there are, um, look at the build a house passed, you know, investing in schools, investing in clean energy, investing in infrastructure. These are things all of us want to do. And, um, and I think you can put a really big package together um, with that coalition um, that will make the left very excited. And, and give them a lot to be proud of um, where they've pushed, um, particularly on climate, um, on healthcare. I think there's gonna be a big push to go towards a public option, which as you all know, was under discussion last time around and, and we couldn't get it across the finish line. So there are some places I think that we can make progress. And then, as I said, on these social issues, we've got uh, a lot of unanimity around policing reform, around guns, around LGBT issues, um, even around protecting Roe that I think can rally the base, get folks excited and not divide our coalition. So it's not gonna be Medicare for all, it's not. But I don't think the progressives think it's going to be Medicare for all. <laughs> they don't think that that's going to be happening on January 20th. Um, they want to move the conversation. So I think uh, there's, there's definitely a way to do this. It's always harder for us, but I think Joe Biden's up to the task. Well, Lene Erickson, thank you for joining us on Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, a really, really smart, deep dive into politics. And um, I'll only point out that I saw something just the other day about a removal from the Democratic Party platform of a line or two, which originally said that we were going to stop subsidizing fossil fuels. Uh, but that has now apparently been removed from the Democratic Party platform. And folks are already starting to say, hmm, what's really going to happen? So your crystal ball and your tea leaves, uh, we may have to have you back um, uh, often to keep on reading the tea leaves. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM streamed live over the internet. We're gonna take a short break to hear from the folks who keep us on the air. We'll be back to wrap up after this. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXLAM and FM streams live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. I'm talking in my best radio voice. We're going to do a very short wrap up. Matt Robeson, you were kind enough to bring Lene Erickson to talk with us from the third way. 
they're generally smart people, but man, oh man, she hit home run after home run. She really knows what's going on. Yeah, what's great and challenging about having Linnea as a guest is that you have to listen to what she said, and then you have to sit down and think about it for like an hour afterwards. It's, it's, it's a rich experience. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. Uh, I'm sure they did, but I, you know, my brain hurts after listening to somebody who really knows what's going on because I just make it up as I go along. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLA of an FM, streamed live over the internet, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We'll be back next week with another exciting edition of Off the Record. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. See you next week, folks. Bye-bye.